O Lord God, you are Jehovah Elohim, the great and mighty creator. You made the earth by your power. You established the world by your wisdom and stretched out the heavens by your understanding. You give the sun for light by day. And, O Lord, you decree the moon and the stars for light by night. You stir up the sea so that the waves roar. The Lord of hosts is your name. O Lord, if we have found grace in your sight, teach us your ways so that we may know you and continue to find favor with you. Holy Spirit, open our heart eyes so that we can truly absorb your glory in this lesson it oozes with your immeasurably rich grace, the grace which saves us and sanctifies us into your willing and humble servants. Use me, Lord. I am your servant. This I ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Did you know that you are an incredible, living, breathing work of art. It is true. And you are not just any work of art. You are the masterpiece of the ultimate artist, the awesome, almighty creator, God. First, he knit you and me and every human ever born in the womb. God is intimately involved in our creation. In Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, the Lord says to Jeremiah, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I set you apart and appointed you a prophet to the nations. What an overwhelmingly wondrous thought. The Lord God Almighty, the creator of the universe, has created us exactly as he wants us to be. Colossians 1.16 clearly teaches that we were all created through God and for God. We exist for his pleasure and his purpose. But when we first made our grand entrance into this world, God's masterpiece was cloaked in sin. We are all born ruined sinners. So the master artist diligently works to create us anew in Christ Jesus. That's what Ephesians 1.10 says in the New Living Translation. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus. So we're created, then recreated in Christ. Now maybe today you don't feel much like a masterpiece. Maybe you're ensnared in discouragement, entangled by dissatisfaction, or engulfed in disease. It could be hard to see the Creator's creation sometimes. Yet God is at work in His masterpieces. Like an archaeologist, He carefully brushes away the dirt and the debris of sin to uncover the beauty He has created in each one of His treasured masterpieces. He works to reveal the unique purpose for which He has recreated us in Christ. By his grace, he has breathed new life into us and is actively transforming his masterpieces into the likeness of Jesus Christ. 
In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, Paul shows that salvation from sin is a gift of God's life-changing, life-transforming grace. That is the truth we will uncover in three divisions, the grave, the grace, and the gift. So our first division is the grave, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Now, in Ephesians chapter 1, it's been a few weeks since we've been in chapter 1, so um, I want to remind you what happened there. Paul listed the spiritual blessings that belong to all who are in Christ. He prayed for the Ephesians to grow in their knowledge of God and to know the riches of God's glorious inheritance in the saints and the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward those who believe. He says, this same power which raised Jesus Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places raises us from the dead and seats us with him in the heavenly places. So now we get to Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 3 and Paul backtracks to show his readers why it took the resurrection power of God to save them. He says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. In a nutshell, this passage says that we are all totally depraved. Before God saves us, we are all dead men walking. One commentator says that we were dead, disobedient, doomed. This is the biblical diagnosis of our sin nature. This is the spiritual diagnosis of all people. You see, we don't just have one foot in the grave. We are buried six feet under. Romans chapter 3 verses 10 through 12 says that none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Apart from God's saving grace, we are all totally depraved. We have no desire for God. We're spiritually dead. We walk in sin. More than that, we love sin. We follow after sin. Verses 2 and 3 reveal this bad news. In our fallen state, we follow the forces of evil in three arenas. The world, the devil, and the flesh. First, Paul says that fallen people follow the course of this world. This refers to being influenced by the values of our culture rather than the values of God. 1 John 2.16 describes this as being marked by the lust of the flesh or the craving for physical pleasure, the lust of the eyes or the craving for everything that we see, and the pride of life or pride in achievements and possessions. 
The second evil force that we follow is the prince of the power of the air. This is Satan, the devil, the enemy of our souls. Satan is the prince of this world, the god of this age. His spirit is now working in the disobedient. This refers to his work in unbelievers. While they may not be completely possessed by Satan, they still live in his dark world and are influenced by his dark ways. They choose his darkness over God's light. Those who are in Christ may be tempted by Satan, but they have the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit to resist every one of those temptations. And because believers are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, they cannot ever be indwelt or possessed by the devil. The third evil force that Paul addresses is our flesh. He says, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Here, our flesh refers to our sin nature, inherited from Adam when he disobeyed God and fell into sin. In our flesh, we pursue and we obey the desires of our bodies and our minds. In Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21, Paul says that when you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outburst of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. I think he covered it pretty well. Apart from Christ, we are all spiritually dead. The dead walk in sin. The dead follow the world. The dead follow Satan. The dead are disobedient to God. The dead follow fleshly passions and desires. Then, in the last part of verse 3, Paul says that the dead are all under God's wrath. He says, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You see, we are doomed. John Stott says that God's wrath is his personal, righteous, constant hostility to evil, his settled refusal to compromise with it, and his resolve instead to condemn it. Further, his wrath is not incompatible with his love. Both are held together by God's character. Our sin earns God's judgment. He is infinitely holy. He cannot and he will not let sin go unpunished. One day he will pronounce his final judgment on all who remain in their disobedience and are dead in their sins. Hebrews 10.31 warns, it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Dead, disobedient, doomed. This does not sound like a masterpiece created by God. The theological doctrine described in these verses is the doctrine of total depravity. This doctrine teaches that we are so infected with sin that we are completely unable and unwilling to respond to God. Do you see how desperately 
We need the grace of God. We need to see this. We need to know this. Author Erwin Lutzer says that only those who, themselves, who see themselves as utterly destitute can fully appreciate the grace of God. In our fallen state, sin literally has a death grip on our souls. There is nothing that we can do or say to escape from this death grip. We are hopeless and helpless. We desperately need someone to save us. Praise God that his salvation from sin is a gift of his life-giving, life-transforming grace. In these three verses, Paul reveals what God's grace saves us from. Our total depravity and God's just wrath. So our first truth is that sinners are saved by grace from total depravity and God's just wrath. How does the truth of the depths of your depravity change how you view God's grace? What's tempting you most right now? The world? The devil? Or your flesh? And what will you do about those temptations? Commentator Tony Merida writes, Now is the period of patience. The door of mercy is open wide now. And we can come into this grace and be saved. God will act in a righteous manner. He will punish sin and sinners justly. The good news for the Christian is that God's wrath has been poured out not on us, but on the Savior. Jesus drank the cup, a metaphor for the wrath of God. He drank the cup, and we drink the grace. Which cup will you drink of? Apart from Christ, you will drink the cup of God's wrath and remain eternally separated from him. In Christ... You will drink the cup of grace and will live now and forever united with him. Sinners are saved by grace from total depravity and God's just wrath. If you have not yet received Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you are still dead in your sins and doomed to suffer God's wrath. Do not wait. Run through the doors of mercy and drink down the cup of God's grace. Paul could never stop talking about God's grace. In our next division, he contrasts the depths of our depravity with the depths of God's grace. So our second division is the grace. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 4 through 7. Now verses 1 through 3 are an intentionally dark part of another long Greek sentence that continues through verse 7. As Paul pivots from the grave to God's grace, two beautiful words pierce the darkness and shine with breathtaking brilliance. But God. Verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Rich in mercy. Great love. 
Mercy is the Old Testament word that describes God's faithful or steadfast love, his hesed, which we've studied before. God sovereignly extends his mercy to those whom he chooses. His mercy is accompanied by his great love. In Romans 5, 8, Paul writes another but God statement. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God's rich mercy and great love prompted him to save dead, disobedient, depraved, doomed sinners. He does not give us what our sins deserve. That's mercy. Instead, he gives us what we do not deserve. That is grace. God initiates our salvation by grace. He accomplishes our salvation by grace. He applies our salvation by grace. Because we are his works of art, he loves us. Even though we are utterly unlovable. God is rich in mercy. His love for us is unfathomably great. And his grace is astounding. It's life-giving, life-transforming. Verse 5 confirms this. It says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. Paul places a spotlight on God's grace by again using the dark backdrop of our utter depravity to prove that salvation is all by grace. By grace we have been saved from the death grip of sin. By grace dead sinners are made fully alive together with Christ. The perfectly obedient Christ who died in our place as the perfect sacrifice for our sin. That dead sinners are made fully alive speaks of God's regenerating grace. You see, dead sinners cannot respond to God's grace unless God regenerates them. This means that we must be born again by God, the Holy Spirit. He breathes new life into dead sinners, enabling them to respond to God's saving grace. Our salvation is all God's work from start to finish. Physically created by God in our mother's womb, we are born spiritually dead. We must receive spiritual life. In John 3, 3, Jesus describes the spiritual birth saying, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Paul adds a parenthetical statement in verse 5. By grace you have been saved. Now he repeats this in verse 8 because it is important that we know that salvation from sin is a gift of God's life-saving, life-transforming grace. This must be so. Dead in our sins, only God's power could raise us up. And God's power is at work on our behalf by his grace alone. Verse 6 continues with the thought from verse 5. God has made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Our union with Christ has stunning implications. 
That we have been raised up with him means that we have been resurrected from death into life, just like Jesus. When Jesus walked out of that tomb 2,000 years ago, you and I walked out with him. Every one of God's elect walked out with him. This is in the past tense because it has already happened. However, it is a present reality. Believers have died to their old life and have been raised to new life in Christ. But there's more. This new life includes an exalted position. Believers are seated with Jesus in the heavenly places. Now, this does not mean that we are divine. But it does mean that right now, we have the power to overcome every evil force of the world, the devil and the flesh. This is our already not yet aspect of our salvation. We have been saved from sin. That is our justification. We are now being transformed into the likeness of Christ. That is our sanctification. And we will one day see the completion of our salvation and be made fully like him. A completely glorified, flawless masterpiece of God. That is our glorification. All of this is a work of God's grace. From verses 4 through 6, grace expresses God's rich mercy and great love. Grace makes the dead alive. Grace saves us from sin and death. Grace raises us up with Christ. And grace enthrones us with Christ in heaven. Why this incredible display of grace? Because God is rich in mercy and he has loved us with a great love. Paul adds one more reason. That God's rich grace toward us might be displayed. Look at verse 7. So that in the coming ages he might show or display the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Back in Ephesians chapter 1 verses 19 through 20. God demonstrated his incomparably great power by raising and exalting Christ Now, in raising and exalting us, he displays the incomparable riches of his grace. And he will continue to do so throughout eternity. John Stott says says that we are exhibits of God's skill and trophies of his grace. God's masterpieces taken from the graveyard to glory by grace were created to forever display his grace. Once covered in the dirt and debris of sin and destined for eternal death, we are fully alive in Christ, shining with his righteousness and the everlasting grace of our creator. Our second truth is that sinners are saved by grace to display God's immeasurably rich grace. How does your life display God's grace? And what filthy sin might be dimming the shining glory that God wants sparkling in you, his masterpiece? What do people see when they see you? Do your words and deeds make his gospel of grace attractive or repulsive 
to the lost. The depths of God's grace pulled us out of the depths of depravity. From now and through eternity, you and I should stand in awe-struck wonder at God's immeasurably rich grace. The magnitude of his grace should transform how we think, speak, and act. Believers are God's trophies of grace displayed in his trophy case for all to see. People should see Christ in you. People should see God, his strength, his wisdom, his kindness, and his love in you. People should see God's power at work in you and through you to reject the ways of the world, the devil, and the flesh. This is how sinners, saved by grace, display God's immeasurably rich grace. We also display God's grace through the works he has ordained for us to do. In our next division, we examine the gift of God's salvation, which encompasses grace, faith, and good works. So our third division is the gift, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. Verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Now, reiterating reiterating what he said in verse 5, Paul adds two words, through faith. By grace we have been saved through faith. Then Paul says that this is the gift of God. Well, what is the gift? Is it the grace? Or is it the faith? Or is it the salvation? Well, scholars don't agree on this. But I can tell you what we do know, what the Bible clearly says, is that grace saves through faith. And Paul says this is not our own doing. We're not saved by our own doing. So this points to God's grace. Salvation from sin is a gift of God's life-giving, life-transforming grace. It is the gift of God. Um, so I'm sorry, if the gift of God is his grace, then his grace is received through faith, which scripture teaches is also a gift of God. Therefore, our entire salvation is a gift. Paul labors to teach that salvation is by grace alone. Do you have that yet? You have that lesson yet? Salvation is by grace alone. Works are not a part of the equation. In verse 9, Paul says, works have nothing to do with our salvation. He says, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Salvation is completely, totally, and entirely a gift of God's grace. You see, this has to be repeated a million times because our souls need to hear this truth every day. Our sin nature does not naturally love grace. We are by nature independent, rebellious, self-centered, self-glorifying, idolatrous creatures. We want to fix our own problems our own way. Thank you very much. Even our sin problem. Our sin nature is why every other major world religion declares that good works are necessary to please God and earn his favor. 
Only Christianity declares that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Good works cannot and will not save you. Now you and I, we may know this intellectually, but do our actions and motives agree? Often without realizing, we will do things to please God so that we can manipulate him, earn his favor. But our good works do not gain favor with God. And good works certainly do not earn dead in their sin sinners salvation from sin. However, God does expect those he saves by grace alone to do good works. In fact, he created us in Christ Jesus for good works. Look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You and I. We're created for good works. Let me take you back to the Garden of Eden, where God established the covenant of works with the first Adam. Adam failed to fulfill his part of the covenant. But the covenant did not fail. God's covenants never, ever fail. The perfect obedience of the second Adam, Jesus Christ, upheld this covenant and his perfect obedience has been imputed or credited to every believer. All who are created in Christ Jesus are recreated, infused with new life, his life, transformed into his image. God's grace, it's life-saving, life-giving, and life-transforming. We are God's workmanship, his works of art, his masterpieces for good works, which God prepared ahead of time that we should walk in them. You see, God has a master plan for his masterpieces, and it includes the covenant of works. By grace, he lifted us out of the total depravity caused by Adam's fall into sin. Then after we are saved by grace... The Holy Spirit works to make us more like Christ, more like the second Adam. This includes the desire to do the good works that God has prepared for us to walk in. The last phrase of verse 10 forms what is called an inclusio, or a bookend that references something at the beginning of a story or a passage. Paul began by saying that we once walked in transgressions and sins. Now, we walk in the good works God has eternally planned for us. So our third truth is that sinners are saved by grace to serve their creator. What motivates you to do anything good? Are your good works the root or the fruit of your salvation? Which God-ordained good works are you doing? Christian, your sole motivation in doing anything good must be because you are a recipient of God's amazing grace. When you and I understand that there is nothing that we can do to earn our salvation, 
that it is all a gift of God's life-giving, life-transforming grace, we can rest. We can finally just rest. Stop working to earn our salvation by what we do or don't do. Then, the reality of God's grace will inspire us, move us, motivate us to do the good works our Creator prepared for us to do. Sinners are saved by grace to serve their Creator. Oh, masterpiece of God. Are you ready to make your grand entrance into the eternal kingdom of King Jesus? Or do you still need a little work? God's grace is life-giving, life-transforming. By grace, he has saved you from the death of total depravity and the just wrath of God. By grace, he continues to transform you. 2 Peter 1.3 says that by his divine power, God graciously gives you and me everything we need to be raised to new life in Christ and to pursue godliness. So day by day, come to the one who created you in quiet times of prayer. Meditate on his God-breathed word. Open your hard eyes to see his life-giving, life-transforming grace. Invite the one who saved you and is sanctifying you to tenderly brush away more and more of the dust and debris of sin. Ask him to continue his work in you until the day you are a perfected, flawless work of art, a stunning masterpiece crafted by the loving, gracious, all-powerful hands of your Father God. Then, in all your shining glory, you will make your grand entrance into the kingdom of Jesus Christ, where your work there will be to worship him forever and ever. Amen. Please pray with me. In the beginning, you, Lord God, created the heavens and the earth. Therefore, the earth is yours in the fullness of it, the world and those who dwell in it. The heavens proclaim your glory. O oh God, the skies display your craftsmanship. Day after day, they continue to speak. Night after night, they make you known. O oh God, we have no excuse for not knowing you, glorifying you, and serving you to the praise of your glory. So Holy Spirit, I pray that day by day, even moment by moment, you will give us the desire to pursue holiness and to joyfully do the work that we have been created and called to do. This I pray in the name above all names, Jesus, who is the Christ. Amen and amen.